Chapter Seven of the Flying Inn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Flying Inn by G. K. Chesterton. Chapter Seven: The Society of Simple Souls. Under sunset, at once softer and more somber, under which the leaden sea took on a Linton purple, a tint appropriate to tragedy. Lady Joan Brett was once more drifting moodily along the seafront. The evening had been rainy and lowering. The watering-place season was nearly over, and she was almost alone on the shore. But she had fallen into the habit of restlessly pacing the place, and it seemed to satisfy some subconscious hunger in her rather mixed psychology. Through all her brooding, her animal senses always remained abnormally active, she could smell the sea when it had ebbed almost to the horizon, and in the same way she heard, through every whisper of waves or wind, the swish or flutter of another woman's skirt behind her. There is, she felt, something unmistakable about the movements of a lady who is generally very dignified, and rather slow, and who happens to be in a hurry. She turned to look at the lady who was thus hastening to overtake her, lifted her eyebrows a little, and held out her hand. The interruption was known to her as Lady Enid Wimpole, cousin of Lord Ivywood, a tall and graceful lady who unbalanced her own elegance by a fashionable costume that was at once funereal and fantastic. Her fair hair was pale, but plentiful. Her face was not only handsome and fastidious in the aquiline style, but when considered seriously, was sensitive, modest, and even pathetic. But her wan blue eyes seemed slightly prominent, with that expression of cold eagerness that is seen in the eyes of ladies who ask questions at public meetings. Joan Brett was herself, as she had said, a connection of the Ivywood family. But Lady Enid was Ivywood's first cousin, and for all practical purposes his sister. For she kept house for him and his mother, who was now so incredibly old that she only survived to satisfy conventional opinion in the character of a speechless and useless chaperone. And Ivywood was not the sort who would be likely to call out any activity in an old lady exercising that office. Nor, for that matter, was Lady Enid Wimpole. There seemed to shine on her the face of some kind of inhuman, absent-minded common sense that shone on her cousins. Oh, I'm so glad I've caught you up, she said to Joan. Lady Ivywood wants you so much to come to us for the weekend or so, while Philip is still there. He always admired your sonnet on Cyprus so much, and he wants to talk to you about this policy of his in Turkey. Of course he's awfully busy, but I shall be seeing him tonight, after the meeting. No living creature, said Lady Joan with a smile, ever saw him except before or after a meeting. Are you a simple soul? asked Lady Enid, carelessly. Am I a simple soul? asked Joan, drawing her black brows together. Merciful heavens, no! What can you mean? Their meeting's on tonight at the small universal hall, and Philip's taking the chair, explained the other lady. He's very annoyed that he has to leave early to get up to the house. But Mr. Levison can take the chair for the last bit. They've got Mississra Ammon. "'Got Mrs. Who?' asked Joan in honest doubt. "'You make a game of everything,' said Lady Enid, 
in cheerless amiability. It's the man everyone's talking about. You know as well as I do. It's really his influence that has made the simple souls. Oh, said Lady Joan Brett. Then, after a long silence, she added, Who are the simple souls? I should be interested in them, if I could meet any. And she turned her dark brooding face on the darkening purple sea. Do you mean to say, my dear, asked Lady Enid Wimpole, that you haven't met any of them yet? No, said Joan, looking at the last dark line of sea. I never met but one simple soul in my life. But you must come to the meeting, cried Lady Enid, with frosty and sparkling gaiety. You must come at once. Philip is certain to be eloquent on a subject like this, and of course Mrsisra Ammon is always so wonderful. Without any very distinct idea of where she was going, or why she was going there, Joan allowed herself to be piloted to a low lead or tin shed, beyond the last straggling hotels, out of the echoing shell of which she could prematurely hear a voice that she thought she recognized. When she came in, Lord Ivywood was on his feet, in exquisite evening dress, but with a light overcoat thrown over the seat behind him. Beside him, in less tasteful but more obvious evening dress, was the little old man she had heard on the beach. No one else was on the platform, but just under it, rather to Joan's surprise, sat Miss Browning, her old typewriting friend in her old black dress, industriously taking down Lord Ivywood's words in shorthand. A yard or two off, even more to her surprise, sat Miss Browning's more domestic sister, also taking down the same words in shorthand. That is Mrsisra Ammon, whispered Lady Enid earnestly, pointing a delicate finger at the little old man beside the chairman. I know him, said Joan. Where's the umbrella? At least evident, Lord Ivywood was saying, that one of those ancestral impossibilities is no longer impossible. The East and the West are one. The East is no longer East, nor the West West, for a small isthmus has been broken, and the Atlantic and Pacific are a single sea. No man assuredly has done more of this mighty work of unity than the brilliant and distinguished philosopher to whom you will have the pleasure of listening tonight. And I profoundly wish that affairs more practical, for I will not call them more important, did not prevent my remaining to enjoy his eloquence, as I have so often enjoyed it before. Mr. Levison has kindly consented to take my place, and I can do no more than express my deep sympathy with the aims and ideals which will be developed before you tonight. I have long been increasingly convinced that underneath a certain mask of stiffness, which the Mohammedan religion has worn through certain centuries, as a somewhat similar mask has been worn by the religion of the Jews, Islam has in it the potentialities of being the most progressive of all religions, so that a century or two to come we may see the cause of peace of science, and of reform everywhere supported by Islam, as it is everywhere supported by Israel. Not in vain, I think, is the symbol of that faith, the crescent, the growing thing. While other creeds carry emblems implying more or less of finality, for this great creed of hope, its very imperfection is its pride, and men shall walk fearlessly in new and wonderful paths, following the increasing curve which contains and holds up before them the eternal promises of the orb. It was characteristic of Lord Ivywood that, though he was really in a hurry, 
He sat down slowly and gravely amid the outburst of applause. The quiet resumption of the speaker's seat, like the applause itself, was an artistic part of the peroration. When the last clap or stamp had subsided, he sprang up alertly, his light greatcoat over his arm, shook hands with the lecturer, bowed to the audience, and slid quickly out of the hall. Mr. Levison, the swarthy young man with the drooping double eyeglass, rather bashfully to the front, took the empty seat on the platform, and in a few words presented the eminent Turkish mystic, Misisra Ammon, sometimes called the Prophet of the Moon. Lady Joan found the Prophet's English accent somewhat improved by good society, but he still elongated the letter U in the same bleeding manner, and his remarks had exactly the same rabidly wrong-headed ingenuity as his lecture upon English inns. It appeared that he was speaking on the higher polygamy, but he began with a sort of general defense of the Moslem civilization, especially against the charge of sterility and worldly ineffectiveness. It is just in the practical things, he was saying, it is just in the practical things, if you could come to consider them in a manner quite equal, that our methods are better than your methods. My ancestors invented the curved swords because one cuts better with a curved sword. Your ancestors possessed the straight swords out of some romantic fancy of being what you call straight. Or I will take a more plain example of which I have myself experience. When I first had the honor of meeting Lord Ivywood, I was unused to your various ceremonies and had a little difficulty, just a little difficulty, in entering Mr. Claridge's hotel, where his lordship had invited me. A servant of the hotel was standing just beside me on the doorstep. I stooped down to take off my boots, and he asked me what I was doing. I said to him, My friend, I am taking off my boots. A smothered sound came from Lady Joan Brett, but the lecturer did not notice it, and went on with a beautiful simplicity. I told him that in my country, when showing respect for any spot, we do not take off our hats, we take off our boots. And because I would keep on my hat and take off my boots, he suggested to me that I had been afflicted by Allah in the head. Now was not that funny? Very, said Lady Joan inside her handkerchief, for she was choking with laughter. Something like a faint smile passed over the earnest faces of the two or three most intelligent of the simple souls, but for most part the souls seemed very simple indeed, helpless-looking people with limp hair and gowns like green curtains, and their dry faces were as dry as ever. But I explained to him, I explained to him for a long time, for a carefully occupied time, that it was more practical, more business-like, more altogether for utility to take off the boots than to remove the hat. Let us, I said to him, consider what many complaints are made against the footwear, what few complaints against the headwear. You complain if in your drawing-rooms is the marching about of muddy boots. Are any of your drawing-rooms marked thus with the marching about of muddy hats? How very many of your husbands kick you with the boot, yet how few of your husbands on any occasion but you with the hat. He looked round with a radiant seriousness, which made Lady Joan, 
almost as speechless for sympathy as she was for amusement with all that was most sound in his too complicated soul she realized the presence of a man really convinced the man on the doorstep he would not listen to me went on misisra ammon pathetically he said there would be a crowd if i stood on the doorstep holding in my hand my boots well i do not know why in your country you always send the young males to be the first of your crowds they certainly were making a number of noises the young males lady joan brett stood up suddenly and displayed enormous interest in the rest of the audience in the back parts of the hall she felt that if she looked for one moment more at the serious face with the jewish nose and the persian beard she would publicly disgrace herself or what was quite as bad for she was the generous sort of aristocrat publicly insult the lecturer she had a feeling that the sight of all the simple souls in bulk might have a soothing effect it had it had what might have been mistaken for a depressing effect lady joan resumed her seat with a controlled countenance now why asked the eastern philosopher do i tell so simple a little story of your london streets a thing happening any day the little mistake had no prejudicial effect lord ivywood came out at the end he made no attempt to explain the true view of so important matters to mr claridge's servant though mr claridge's servant remained on the doorstep but he commanded mr claridge's servant to restore to me one of my boots which had fallen down the front steps while i was explaining this harmlessness of the hat in the home so all was for me very well but why do i tell such little tales he spread out his hands again in his fan-like eastern style then he clapped them together so suddenly that joan jumped and looked instinctively for the entrance of five hundred negro slaves laden with jewels but it was only his emphatic gesture of eloquence he went on with an excited thickening of the accent because my friends this is the best example i could give of the wrong and slanderous character of the charge that we fail in our domesticities that we fail especially in our treatment of the womankind i appeal to any lady to any christian lady is not the boot more devastating more dreaded in the home than the hat the boot jumps he bound he run about he break things he leave on the carpet the earths of the garden the hat he remain quiet on his hat peg look at him on his hat peg how quiet and good he remain why not let him remain quiet also on his head lady joan applauded warmly as did several other ladies and the sage went on encouraged can you not therefore trust dear ladies this great religion to understand you concerning other things as it understands you regarding boots what is the common objection our worthy enemies make against our polygamy that it is disdainful of womanhood but how can this be so my friends when it allows the womanhood to be present in so large numbers when in your house of commons you put a hundred english members and just one little welsh member you do not say the welshman is on top 
he is our sultan may he live for ever if your jury contained eleven great large ladies and one little man you would not say this is unfair to the great large ladies why should you shrink then ladies from this great polygamical experiment which lord ivywood himself joan's dark eyes were still fixed on the wrinkled patient face of the lecturer but every word of the rest of the lecture was lost to her under her glowing spanish tint she had turned pale with extraordinary emotions but she did not stir a hair the door of the hall stood open and occasional sounds came even from that deserted end of the town two men seemed to be passing along the distant parade one of them was singing it was common enough for workmen to sing going home at night and the voice though a loud one would have been too far off for joan to hear the words only joan happened to know the words she could almost see them before her written in a round swaggering hand on a pink page of an old schoolgirl album at home she knew the words and the voice i come from castle patrick and my heart is on my sleeve and any sort of pistol boy can hit it with my leave it shines therefore an epaulet as golden as a flame as naked as me ancestors as noble as me name for i come from castle patrick and my heart is on my sleeve but a lady stole it from me on st gallo glasses eve startlingly and with strong pain there sprang up before joan's eyes a patch of broken heath with a very deep hollow of white sand blinding in the sun no words no name only the place the folks that live in liverpool their heart is in their boots they go to hell like lambs they do because they're hooter hoots where men may not be dancing though the wheels may dance all day and men may not be smoking but only chimneys may but i come from castle patrick and my heart is on my sleeve but a lady stole it from me on st polyander's eve the folks that live in black belfast their heart is in their mouth they see us making murders in the meadows of the south they think a plough's a wreck they do and cattle calls our creeds and they think we're burning witches when we're only burning weeds but i come from castle patrick and me heart is on me sleeve but a lady stole it from me on st barnabas's eve the voice had stopped suddenly but the last lines were so much more distinct that it was certain the singer had come nearer and was not marching away it was only after all this and through a sort of cloud that lady joan heard the indomitable oriental bringing his whole eloquent address to a conclusion and if you do not refuse the sun that returns and rises in the east with every morning you will not refuse either this great social experiment this great polygamical method which also arose out of the east and always returns for this is that higher polygamy which always comes like the sun itself out of the orient but is only at its noontide splendor when the sun is high in heaven but she was vaguely conscious of mr levison the man with the dark face and the eyeglasses acknowledging the entrancing lecture in suitable terms and calling on any of the simple souls who might have questions to ask to ask them it was only when the simple souls had displayed their simplicity with the usual parade of well-bred reluctance and fussy self-effacement that anyone addressed the chair and it was only after somebody had been addressing the chair for some time that joan gradually awoke to the fact that the address was somewhat unusual 
End of chapter 7 The Society of Simple Souls